Here is one of our many recordings from the Revolutionary Ideas Online Festival held on the 28th and 29th of November 2020. This was a weekend of Marxist discussion and debate held by Socialist Alternative. Want to join our fight? Go to socialistalternative.net today and get in touch to play your role in the struggle for a world free of capitalist oppression. James Hansen, uh, now perhaps the most respected climate scientist in the world, testified before Congress that, quote, global warming had reached a level such that we can ascribe with a high degree of confidence a cause and effect relationship between the greenhouse effect and observed warming. Later that year, Time magazine declared that the endangered earth was the annual person of the year. And yet since 1988, almost 40% of all carbon emissions in history have been released. And we have witnessed ecological horrors once thought to be unimaginable, some of which Jack just mentioned, such as the wildfires in Australia uh, that killed or displaced more than 3 billion animals. Um, there have been heat waves in India and Pakistan that have killed thousands of people. Um, there was there have been... Uh, enormous hurricanes um, resulting in the deaths of thousands of people and the displacements of hundreds of thousands more. This is a very, very dire predicament we are in. Um, and the climate crisis is, is the issue that defines the 21st century. That's not to say that issues like poverty and social injustice and imperialism and so on aren't pervasive problems that urgently need solving. On the contrary, these problems are fundamental elements that intersect to form a network that enables the acceleration of climate catastrophe. Um, so to avert the apocalypse, we need to dismantle this network. But, but what has been done since 1988? Um, so th there have been piecemeal measures to address the crisis. The Paris Agreement is quite a famous example it was signed by 196 states five years ago. Um, but it's an agreement that fails to even mention fossil fuels. And since 2015, there are only two countries, according to climateactiontracker.org, that are meeting the target set by the agreement, Morocco and the Gambia. Countries that are, quote, critically insufficient include Argentina, the US, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Vietnam and the Ukraine. Close on their heels is China, Japan, South Africa, and the UK. Um, once again, according to Climate Action Tracker, uh, the government's, the UK government's current 2030 target of a 57% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions below 1990 levels is rated as insufficient for limiting warming to below 1.5 C. Recently, Boris Johnson announced uh, his plans to address the ecological crisis. At first glance, his plans may seem bold, but on further inspection, one can see the cracks begin to form. Uh, Adrian Buller, who, who works for Commonwealth, a climate change policy think tank, described the government's plans as follows. Quote, while it's good to see the climate crisis emerging as a priority, and these are some welcome first steps, the announcement suggests the UK government is not yet serious about meeting its own targets. 
the spending commitments amount to less than half of the 27 billion committed to road building. Um, and, it, and, it, and it does not address the steep inequalities driving the crisis. And it is true that inequality is at the heart of the crisis. We know that just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. The likes of ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Aramco. We also know that it is the poor and disadvantaged who have borne the brunt of climate change, most acutely in developing countries. In an article for Open Democracy, uh, the author Daniel Macmillan Bosco Boynek elucidates upon the colonial history of climate change and the subjugations and exploitations of people in the global south. From the burning of villages in Tanzania, where around 300,000 people perished, to India, where the British entirely reorganized the agricultural system. India's land, previously used for low-scale subsistence agriculture, would now be destined for cash crops such as cotton and tea, grown for export to international markets. The article begins with an epitaph from a Uruguayan author, uh, Eduardo Galeano, and it goes like this, quote, the invading civilizations confuse ecology with idolatry. Communion with nature was a sin worthy of punishment. Nature was a fierce beast that had to be tamed and punished so that it could work as a machine placed at our service forever and ever. A recent study by the Institute for Economics and Peace predicts that over 1 billion people could be displaced by the year 2050, just 30 years from now. Uh, and this year we saw the vitriolic reaction to a mere 4,000 people attempting to migrate to England. I dread to think of the future where politicians turn a blind eye to those who only leave their homes because of the pursuit of policies that correspond with the ideology they ascribe to, which is uh, neoliberalism. And as neoliberalism is at the root of the inaction surrounding the climate crisis, the fossil fuel executives have known about the consequences of their practices for a long time, like the tobacco company executives before them who knew all about the devastating effects of smoking. In fact, a couple of hours ago, uh, I was procrastinating and I came across an Instagram post by Working Class History. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them. And it turns out that on this day, 28th of November in 1985, an internal document circulated within the Shell Oil Corporation stating that there has been a global warming over the last 100 years, that the 0.5 increase is a result, is a result of CO2 buildup, that we will see a further one to two degree warming over the next 40 years. Such a rise would be greater than any change in the last 1,000 years. And the politicians have known too, met many of the politicians that James Hansen, the climate scientist, testified before in 88, are still lawmakers. Plausible deniability withered away a long time ago. The system of neoliberalism, the predominant version of modern capitalism, is antithetical to the systemic change that is needed to avert catastrophic warming. Its proponents believe in the free market, privatization, deregulation, austerity, etc. And since 1988, we have seen the system rise and rise and fail and fail working people. From the global financial crisis of 2008 to the current COVID-19 crisis, we have witnessed the abject failure of neoliberal capitalism. The only people it works for are those a part of the ruling class. Uh, so 
yeah, growth is one of the key commandments of capitalist, capitalist ideology. And it's one of the key components to the acceleration of the crisis. Those who are devout practitioners of neoliberal capitalism justify their actions by insisting that perpetual economic growth is more important than the welfare of the planet and the people and species that live on it. This is akin to the colonial justification of spreading democracy to so-called uncivilized lands. And we continue to see these comparable justifications destroy communities. There are sacrifice zones, areas that are uh, that the exploiters have deemed to be expendable. The Niger Delta is one of these zones where Shell have dumped, according to Amnesty, the equivalent of nine Olympic swimming pools of oil. This has resulted in devastation for the people that lived there. Among them was the activist Ken Saru Wiwa, who, along with eight other activists, was murdered by the government for resisting what he claimed were genocidal practices. Given that the water is now contaminated with 900 times the World Health Organization accepted levels of benzene, a chemical known to cause cancer, who could find fault with his analysis? These sacrifice zones are not unique to countries in the global south either. Sacrifice zones are littered across the United States, from New Orleans to New Jersey. Communities have been ravaged by extractivism. In Canada, there is the colossal tar sands project that has resulted in deforestation and increased cancer rates among people and animals, particularly in indigenous communities. And these sacrifice zones would not exist without uh, the ideology of perpetual economic growth at the cost of life. We have seen this year with the COVID-19 pandemic, the willingness of politicians and those who control their politics to let people die at the altar of money. And the frequency of pandemics is, will increase as a result of the climate crisis too, mostly due to the movement of species. Uh, Professor Hans Otto Portner told Carbon Brief, quote, climate change is clearly a factor that can influence these relationships. Climate change shapes the biogeographical distribution of species. If in the future we see species moving into areas where humans are prevalent, we could see new opportunities for pandemics to evolve. Um, and so far I've spoken about the devastating impact the climate crisis is having on the world, but I haven't spoken about the resistance to oppressive policies. Um, harrowingly resisting the ecological crisis and the profiteers that accelerate the crisis often results in activists being uh, murdered. According to Global Witness, a nonprofit that seeks to expose human rights abuses, 212 environmental activists were killed last year. Around half of these killings took place in Colombia and the Philippines, and 40% of the victims descended from indigenous communities. In Brazil, 24 environmental activists were killed in 2019. Uh, and the 212 murders were mostly attributed to the mining, agriculture, and logging industries. And Yet these activists have not been silenced. Indigenous communities are still fighting to protect their homes from obscene ecological degradation from Brazil, where last year thousands of activists protested Bolsonaro's plans to, according to a report by The Guardian, quote, transfer responsibility for demarcation of indigenous reserves to Brazil's agricultural ministry, which is controlled by members of a powerful farming lobby that has long opposed indigenous land rights. And we witnessed what happened in Dakota in the United States where indigenous and environmental activists resisted the construction of Dakota Access Pipeline, 
which pose serious threat to the ecological welfare of the area, particularly land considered sacred to various indigenous tribes. And in the global north, we have seen, um, as, as Jack mentioned before, an, an intensification in, in the consciousness of people with regards to the crisis, uh, particularly among young people. Um, the kids who have struck from school and marched across thousands of cities around the world. And though Extinction Rebellion is considered by many on the left as problematic due to their mostly middle class and white membership and their opposition to socialist ideas, they have managed to amplify the problem and shift the issue from being a uh, obscure, merely scientific question to an issue that is regularly on the lips of people concerned about the future. And there are many, many people engaged with and concerned about the future. And there are many kinds of futures uh, that are on the cards. Uh, Naomi Klein, the author of um, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, told Democracy Now! last year, quote, the only thing scarier than a far-right racist government that denies climate change is a far-right racist government that doesn't. I've already spoken about uh, the prediction that over 1 billion people could be displaced by 2050. The United Nations found that 141 countries faced at least one ecological threat by 2050, with Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, the Middle East and North Africa, the regions facing the largest number. One can imagine a future where countries in the global north prioritise the lives of those who are often prioritising the system of racial hierarchy, white Christians at the top of the ladder and black and brown people at the bottom. Klein also uh, calls attention to the strange coincidence that on the same day the first climate school strike took place on March 15th last year, Brenton Harrison Tarrant slaughtered 51 Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. This is only significant because Tarrant in his manifesto declared himself to be among other abhorrent things, an eco-fascist. This is quite disturbing and eco-fascism is a potential future since climate denialism cannot go on for much longer. And it is up to us, people involved in grassroots politics, uh, from labor unions to environmental organizations to LGBT organizations to make sure that that future uh, does not materialize. That's all. Sorry for the fire alarm. Um, wicked, thank you, Sammy. Um, we're just uh, we've got uh, one more speaker uh, to come in now, um, and it's um, Sophia, uh, who's a, a precarious worker and also a member of our uh, national committee. Um, so yeah, so I'll hand over to Sophia. All right, thank you, uh, Jack, and thanks to Sammy as well for kind of giving us a good overview of um, what's happening with kind of environmental crisis and some of the kind of local activism that's happening around the world as well. So I want to focus a little bit more uh, kind of specifically about um, the school student strikes um, and kind of the climate movement uh, here in the in the UK. Um, the it's nature kind of at the moment, uh, it's development and how can we take it forward and um, ensure that it's ultimately successful. So uh, yes, yeah, as, as uh, Sammy said, this is kind of ballooned into a, um, uh, a global uh, movement 
And, you know, I think that's absolutely what we need to tackle what is undeniably a global problem. Um, and the solutions will have to be implemented on a global scale. Um, as as um, uh, Sammy and I think also Jack kind of implied, these problems are systematic. They are caused by capitalism and they can't and won't be solved by capitalism. And um, as again, as Sammy mentioned, this is uh, a weakness of some environmental groups, most no notably uh, Extinction Rebellion, that they don't really acknowledge this and don't, don't um, well, kind of um, mold themselves as explicitly not socialist. Um, and uh, yeah, of often arguing that, that the climate is not a political question. Uh, and kind of one version of this, which is, uh, I'm sure everyone has seen um, examples of that at local protests. I think there's less of it these days, but uh, that of focusing on individual responsibility, um, things like shaming people for driving cars, uh, for eating meat, etc. Um, when the system that we're in makes our choice in the in the matter kind of quite limited, you know, driving a car well public transport is expensive and insufficient in most places. I mean, here in Leicester, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I try to cycle places because I don't drive, which is quite handicapping a lot of the time. Um, but the kind of infrastructure for cycling is not really there. It's it's like, it's lethal to, to try to do it a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, a lot of people have to drive to get around. Um, and notably, this kind of focusing on individuals and also on people as consumers uh, is also popular with the, the, the powers that be as it relieves them of any responsibility and any blame. And it also avoids drawing any conclusions that might threaten their positions and their power. Uh, yeah, like I said, XR has definitely got tendencies to, to do these things. Uh, and I think there's... Um, uh, kind of tendencies within the school strikes um, to this as well. But I think there has been a general trend uh, kind of on the grassroots level of the movement um, to move away from these ideas rather than towards them, which is really positive. Um, but this kind of, I think there's discrepancy between the grassroots level and the leadership um, kind of brings us to another of the main problems that both the school strikes and the XR shares which is uh, a skepticism towards getting organized uh, and towards establishing formal structures uh, so i mean this is definitely not unique to uh, the the environmental movement you know we're seeing it across i think every popular movement these days that i can think of anyway you know, um, we got Podemos in Spain, the Yellow Vests in France, Momentum here in the UK, for, for what that's worth, they're not really a thing anymore, but uh, uh, to, to kind of popular movements like the, the Movement for Democracy in Hong Kong, which is very kind of anti-leadership, uh, uh, and the Black Lives Matter as well, um, or kind of uh, another recent example. I think, I mean, this suspicion of leadership is is understandable. Um, you know, we, we I think there's that kind of suspicion of politicians, but we shouldn't equate having leadership to just kind of um, absolving any uh, responsibility onto a kind of uh, a leadership and, and um, just kind of, yeah, um, resign 
a resignation of power to kind of a few representatives at the top. I mean, what we want to see is for the climate movement to be, be become more um, both more democratic, um, but also more effective. And I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, so, I mean, firstly, the problem with the, the kind of horizontal leaderless movements is that uh, pretty, uh, well, I think pretty much always a de facto leadership does emerge. I mean, Nexstar has quite an explicit leadership, but even the ones that um, that that are very like anti-leader and, and supposedly don't have a leadership, they, it kind of leads to a, a less democratic structure in that it can be, you know, um, whoever happens to be the admin on the local Facebook page or the person that ends up as being the press contact um, or something less obvious, you know, these end up as uh, the people who uh, kind of speak for everyone without actually having uh, been given that um, privilege or, you know, that sort of thing. So I think um, this situation is far less democratic than what we would propose, which is that the the movement um, environmental activists should organize meetings where where structures and strategy and kind of roles can be discussed and decided democratically uh, and like a proper plan can be um, decided on which i think is something that's not happening to the extent that it should and um, i think it's it's sorely needed at the moment um, and um I think, like I mentioned, while, while many of the ideas are developing in a positive direction with participants drawing anti-capitalist and socialist conclusions, um, the movement, I think, is struggling to galvanise around concrete ideas and demands and, and kind of what the way forward is. And I think already before Corona, we saw a lull in the movement, which I think, you know, it's not something to be really alarmed about necessarily, you know. It's, it's quite natural that all movements will have kind of ebbs and flows. Um, but I think, I think also that the urgency of the environmental crisis means that it's very, I mean, I think it's inevitable that these protests will erupt again. Um, but I think a lack of sense of direction makes it activity harder to maintain. Um, and I think, yeah, this is something that that's, needs to kind of, um, there needs to be a focus on um, at the moment as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the task facing the movement is obviously momentous um, and, and we need to start organise accordingly, um, as I said, with discussion. Um, but also, I think a really crucial thing is to think about how we expand the movement. Um, and I think there's been a reluctance to do this, certainly in, in some um, some parts of the movement uh, of like wanting to keep it to the students that you know it's the adults that have betrayed betrayed us etc et and you know while it's true that people who are young today will bear more of the burden um, of climate change than those who are old we really do need to for this movement to be as big as possible as, as it possibly can um, and you know students and young people may have a lot of energy and idealism and sometimes more time on their hands I think it's really crucial for students to join up with workers um, as uh, this is really the only way that these struggles can be successful in the end. You know, not to underestimate the, the power that student striking can have and protest, etc. But 
workers have a power that students don't of making society truly grind to halt um, by withdrawing the labour. And this is the power to really hurt those big companies that bear the biggest responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions uh, and pollution. So um, in the current situation, um, we in Socialist Alternative are calling for conferences of resistance to the ideas to bring together all the kind of disparate movements that we have today to come together and discuss how to go forward. Um, so we are calling uh, on climate strikers, uh, BLM activists, uh, labour and now mostly former labour lefts, um, as well as community activists and trade unionists to kind of join forces in working towards our common goals because capitalism is a common enemy at the root of all these things. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the struggle for socialism and the struggle to save the environment is ultimately one of the same because under capitalism, the environment is doomed. Um, so yeah, I mean, not only would many of the kind of immediate goals be the same to kind of take um, back some of that wealth that the capitalists are hoarding and, use it, or, and, and are using to destroy the environment, um, to take that and put it to use for the good of the environment instead. Um, things like building environmentally friendly council housing, investing in public transport and uh, jobs in the in the green uh, in green industries. So I mean if this rings a bell and this is kind of along the lines of what's being proposed um, in the Green New Deal popularized by AOC in America but it's gaining traction over here too and I think that's a really positive um, development as well um, of kind of tying together that struggle um, for, for the environment with what's needed to uh, to make that happen kind of throughout the population of, of creating green jobs, green homes, uh, fighting for workers' rights and fighting against racism and sexism. Um, I mean, I think there's some limitations to it in that there's not the focus on um, mass mobilization and on um, nationalization of taking those industries into uh, public ownership um, and more focus on taxation um, but, you know, I think it's still a, a good step in the right direction. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so these are kind of some of the examples uh, of the ones we can make today, but it'd be great to hear more in the discussion. Uh, and yeah, like this kind of pro uh, programme would take us part of the way to what, towards what is ultimately needed, which is to take all of society into public ownership uh, under workers' control uh, and community control. Um, and uh, run it all democratically with a view to produce what is needed by the people uh, and by the, by the earth rather than uh, producing what is profitable. Um, I mean, so like obvious problems like planned obsolescence um, and overproduction of pro products that we don't really need in society. These are things that could very easily just be done away with um, once we have kind of workers control. Um, then there's of course a lot more complex issues and systemic issues that would be discussed by workers in the relevant industries who know how these things work, um, along with community members, along with uh, researchers. And I think it's um, really important that we would uh, also put more resources into research to inform these decisions, as well as coming up with new scientific solutions to these problems. And that's something else that's definitely not being done uh, under capitalism. 
So, you know, we would reshape the food industry to be more sustainable. We would restructure production chains to minimize transport. Uh, we would replant forests to improve biodiversity as well as just human quality of life and health. Um, and these are things that would be needed to change the trajectory of the planet. And they would be possible under a worker rather than democratic socialist system. And they will never be possible under capitalism. So, yeah, to, to sum up, you know, today we need to democratise the movement to start the discussions about how we go forward. And we as socialists uh, must do our best to kind of imbibe it with our ideas and methods, which history has shown to be the most effective. Um, and this is how we will achieve a socialist society. And that is how we will win the battle against uh, climate change. So I will leave it there. Thank you.